Hello, welcome to the podcast at Chesterfield Baptist Church. One of the things we're going to start doing on our podcast is we're going to start uploading our Wednesday night Bible studies. We're starting a fresh Bible study uh, this week. We just did it last night. We are beginning in the book of James, and we're going to go verse by verse, expositorily through the entire book. And uh, it's just going to be a great journey. I want to share that with as many people as possible. So our first uh, message in James, we're really talking about the man. Who was he? Um, we're trying to get inside of his head before we read his book. So um, enjoy our first message on the book of James. So before we get into James, and I mean before we read the first verse, we've got to understand the man. We have got to understand who he was and what did he do, okay? So, um, so James is the Hebrew name Jacob or Jacob. So Jacob and James are the same name. Of course, it means supplanter in Hebrew. Um, the first thing we need to discuss is which James wrote the book of James. How many Jameses could a James, 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 if a James could James, James? Yes. Well, there you go. Stealing my thunder. But, uh, but let's go through, and uh, there are actually, in the New Testament, there are four people named James. Uh, the first James is the father of Judas, the apostle. Not that one. The other one. Not Iscariot. <laughs> but uh, the other. No one, of course, thinks of him as the writer of James. The other three people would consider more likely candidates that would write the book of James. And of course, the first one is James, the son of Zebedee, who's also the brother of John. However, we can discount this James as the writer of the book of James because he was martyred by Herod Agrippa about 25 years before the book was written. And uh, J James, the son of Zebedee, was actually the second martyr after Stephen, and he was the first apostle to give his life for the cause of Christ. Um, and of course, if it was this James that wrote the book, would it not say James the apostle of Jesus Christ? Uh, the second James we could see in the New Testament is James the son of Alphaeus, who was another apostle. Um, he was called... James the Less, or James the Little, or as the Chosen has them, call him Little James. And that's because there were a lot of Jameses, and they didn't want to get, uh, get them confused. This James was a little shorter in stature, and so they called him James the Less. Um, so that was one way of differentiating between them. But once again, if he would have wrote it, would it not have said James the Apostle? Uh, would it not claim his apostleship? So most scholars agree that the James that wrote the book of James was the brother of, of Jesus. 
Um, and as we go through the lesson tonight, we'll see uh, evidence for this as we go through. Now, I want to ask you a question. What would it have been like to grow up in the same house as Jesus? Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? I never have to get on to Jesus, but I'm always having to get on to you. I mean, what would it have been like to grow up in the house of, uh, of Jesus, you know? Why can't you be more like your brother taken to a hundred, you know? Um, now, this is a hypothetical question for me and you, but for James, it was a reality. This was a reality uh, for James. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus had brothers and he had sisters. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus but she was not a perpetual virgin. Okay, she wasn't a virgin forever. And to claim that is to deny plain Scripture. You have to do some sort of contortionist act to try to claim that and go out of your way and deny Scripture in order to claim that Mary was perpetually a virgin. We know from Scripture that she had at least six children and probably way more. Okay, She had at least six children that we know of. Someone read for me Luke 2, 7. Okay, it says there, her firstborn son. So that there, in and of itself, implies that there were more than one child, that she had others. And in fact, in Matthew 16 and in Mark 6, her sons are named. And they are named in this order. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. These same passages tell us that he had multiple sisters, okay? Although their names are not given. Look, families back then, they were large. They had, they had big families. I mean, my grandfather was one of 17. Um, my grandfather on the other side was, I think, one of 12. But my papa Clyde Sterling, he was one of 17 children. Okay, so people back that he wasn't born back in the time of Christ, but people back then they did have, uh, you know, large families. Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. He was not the only begotten Son of Mary. Now these were half siblings, but look, they lived together from birth as a family. They played together. They did their chores together. They worked together. They ate together. They celebrated the festivals together. They lived together as a family. In fact, Jesus didn't start out on His earthly ministry until He was 30 years old. And up until that time, He did what all men do. They lived in or around the Father's house and worked with the father. He did carpentry work with Joseph. 
um, you know, in this little town called Nazareth until the age of 30. Now, one of his siblings was this man named James. And, and just again, what would have it been like for James to grow up with a perfectly righteous brother? I want you to just think about that. We've got four aspects to James we are going to, uh, to talk about tonight. Uh, number one, he is the unbelieving brother. He is the unbelieving brother. Now listen, you do not have to look very far to find mythical stories about what Jesus did as a child. In fact, there's a story about how he purified contaminated water. There's a story about how he made clay pigeons, clay sparrows, and, and, and breathed life into them and they flew away. There's literature in the Apocrypha that one of Jesus' playmates as a child died and he couldn't handle it, so he brought his playmate back to life. There's a story where he healed a woodcutter's injury. There's a story where Jesus took one grain of wheat and turned it into a hundred bushels. There's a story about how at Joseph's shop, somebody cut a board too short and Jesus took the board and lengthened it. Wouldn't that be handy? Yeah, but what are you talking about the stretcher? <laughs> right, so it's, it's, oh, it's, it's hidden with the, with the hose stretcher. Yeah, that's where this, they're in the same spot. Um, so um, he raised one of his teachers from the dead. There's a story about how this James, what we're talking about, he healed James as a child from a potentially fatal snake bite. There's even a story about them going out in the wilderness and seeing Jesus surrounded by leopards and lions and they're bowing down, worshiping Jesus. Oh, and here's a good one. There's this one story when Jesus was a child, there was this piece of fruit up in a tree. He couldn't reach it. So he commanded the tree to bow down and the tree bowed down and gave him the fruit. Um, none of that, by the way, is in the Bible and it's all a fabrication. It's all made up. It, it, it didn't happen. Jesus growing up appeared to be just like every other child. He, he did. He appeared to be like every other child in that town, in that family. In fact, when Jesus came back to minister to his hometown, they did not say, hey, this is the tree bender. Hey, this is the guy that rose his, his little playmate from the dead. Oh, oh, this is the wood stretcher kid. That's, you know, they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this his mom over there and his brothers and sisters? Aren't they with us? And he's supposed to be the Messiah? You know, they, uh, you know, this, that, or somebody read for me Luke 2.40. Okay, he grew just like everybody else. And in uh, my New American here, it says he increased in wisdom. 
Well, that's interesting. This is Jesus. He's God. But he increased in wisdom. And he increased in wisdom so that by the time he was 12 years old, he had a full understanding of who he was, what his nature was, and what he was here to do. He knew he had to be about his father's business. And we'll get to that here in just a minute. Somebody read for me Hebrews 5.8. How could Jesus, who never stopped being God, learn anything? How could he increase anything? How could Jesus, the eternal God, even experience obedience unless he cast off the glory of the throne and humbled himself? made himself a little lower than the angels. Um, and he didn't pass from disobedience to obedience. He just learned what it took to obey. Okay? Somebody read for me Hebrews 4.15. I got a scratch, sorry. So he experienced the same temptation that every child experiences. He experienced the same temptation that all teenagers face. He experienced the same thing that all young adults face. He experienced the same thing that all adults faced. He experienced them just like everybody else. He went through the same temptations that we have went through. He understands us because He's walked in our shoes. But the difference is He did it without sin. And to His, to his uh, siblings, it would have made Him just a pain. Okay, It just would have made Him a pain to his siblings. You have to, you have to understand Jesus' upbringing to understand where James is coming from because, you know, Jesus, he never had a bad attitude. He never gossiped. He never spoke an evil word. He never disobeyed his parents. He never, uh, complained about dinner. He never, uh, complained about dinner. He, 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 he never, um, did any of that. He never bickered with his brothers and his sisters. He, he never lied. Jesus never wasted one second of his life. He had victory over every sin. He was holy, absolute perfection. Now, as a parent, let me tell you, that would have been the favorite kid. Without a doubt. That's the one. That's the favorite, okay? Um, he would have been the favorite kid. Now, can you imagine the jealousy that his siblings had for him? His parents never had to correct him. His parents never had to punish him. And it's a very good possibility that from a human standpoint, this is why his siblings had so much disdain 
for Jesus. And it's probably why they rejected him. Somebody read for me John 7, 5. Seven five, John seven five. They didn't believe in him. His own brothers. They, they didn't believe in him. Uh, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went to Passover because you're supposed to go to Passover. So they went and it was a four day journey from Nazareth. So they went and uh, they had Passover and then they're coming back and then they go about a day's journey and Joseph walks up to Mary and says, hey, is Jesus with you? And, and because the women would usually go first because they were slower to walk and because they had so much stuff and the men would meet with them later that night. And Mary was like, no, Jesus is with me. Is Jesus with you? And Joseph was like, no, Jesus is with me. I wonder if Jesus is with the relatives. And they checked with the relatives and Jesus wasn't with the relatives. And so we're like, where's Jesus? Um, but the thing is, is you have to understand, don't be too hard on Mary and Joseph and think, well, they didn't, they didn't keep up with their kid. Listen, they had never had to worry about Jesus before. Um, they, they had never had, they, they had assumed that he was where he was, they thought he was supposed to be, and they had never had to worry about Jesus before. And so they went back to Jerusalem and took three days to find him. And when they found him, um, he was in the temple. And he was asking the doctors questions. Sometimes I get around people with these PhDs and they're talking all intellectual and I keep my mouth shut so I sound smart. Uh, but he was, he was right there with them asking compelling questions. And, uh, you know, this, and so they found him. And this is the first time in Jesus' life that he had ever confounded his parents. This is the first time, okay? And Mary said, why have you done this to me and your father? Referencing Joseph, okay? And she said this because it appeared that Jesus had been irresponsible, okay? Um, and then he says, did you not know that I might be about my father's business? He wasn't talking about Joseph. He was talking about his father, God. Now, a couple things about this. Um, it was at this time, at 12 years old, he fully understood who he was, what he was there to do. He had increased in wisdom. This is where he knew his mission. He knew his nature. He had a full understanding of why he was here. So what Jesus said, it wasn't disrespectful to his parents, but it was a statement about he knew his mission. And this is another thing that when we read this passage, we tend to, to, to glaze over. But if, if another Jew 
around them had really understood what 12-year-old Jesus said, they would have considered that blasphemy. It's second, it's second language for me and you to say Father God or Heavenly Father. That's second language for us. For a Jew in Jesus' time, that was blasphemy. Because you are putting yourself equal with God. Somebody read for me John 5.18. When you called God your father, um, they considered that blasphemy. So after this incident, 12 years old, you know what Jesus did? He went back home and for 18 more years, he resumed normal life. I mean, he was just so normal that his neighbors didn't believe that he was the Messiah. That's why they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is Mary with us? Are his brothers with us? And in and, and, and Mark 3.21, they concluded that he was out of his mind. They concluded that he was a mental patient. Somebody read for me Mark 6.4. Not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. His country didn't respect him. His relatives didn't honor him. And in his own house, his family did not honor him. He, he never turned clay pigeons into birds. He never resurrected a dead playmate. Um, in fact, somebody read for me John 2.11. It says there, this was the beginning of his signs, water into wine. That was the beginning of the signs. That was the first one. So he didn't do all that stuff that people claim he did growing up. But you know, he was perfect. And it, this perfection was not enough to convince his siblings of his deity. And then he got into the ministry and then he started to claim these things about uh, being the Messiah, and they just said he was crazy. They didn't believe on him, and, and they had disdain on him because of his, his perfection. And uh, so James is really kind of an unlikely candidate to be used of God. Now, another interesting fact is in, in both listings of the brothers, James was the first one listed. So it would stand to reason that James was the next child under Jesus. So other than Jesus, well, that meant that James was the second 
oldest uh, son in the family, which would also mean that he had to suffer being compared to Jesus the longest. And also when Jesus started his public ministry, James would have become the leader of the family. Why? Because Joseph is dead. You see, when Joseph died, Jesus became the leader of the family. And then James had to submit himself to Jesus, which I know at that point he absolutely hated to do. And then when Jesus went to go start his ministry, James became uh, the leader of the family. Now, how do we know that Joseph was dead? Because he, after the 12-year-old incident, he's not mentioned anymore in Scripture. And at the cross, Jesus puts Mary in John's care because Mary's a widow. Okay? Um, this also meant that James would have been the spokesperson. He would have been the one voicing the siblings' unbelief of Jesus. Okay? So, geez, so James is an unbelieving brother that is hostile towards Jesus. So let's look at the second point. First, he's an unbelieving brother. Next, he is a believing brother. Now, there is no indication in Scripture that through the three years of Jesus's ministry that his siblings came into uh, uh, believed in him at any point during his ministry. The Bible actually tells us that it was after his death, after his resurrection, and after his ascension is the first time we notice that there's a change in the siblings. Because his brothers and sisters appear as a part of the 120 believers in the upper room awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit. Somebody read for me Acts 1.14. So the, the Jesus' sisters would have been counted with the women. So Jesus' siblings now are in the upper room with the 120. So at this point, they had come into, uh, they had come to believe in him as Messiah, believe in him as Lord. How did this happen? How did his siblings go from unbelief to belief after all this had taken place? How did they come to believe in him as Lord? Well, the answer is in 1 Corinthians 15. You see, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is surveying the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, who has 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. Not James the Apostle, James and then the Apostles. Um, this is James's brother. So this tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus personally appeared to James. And this is where James 
was converted. Now, either all of the brothers and sisters was with James when this happened, or James went back and told the brothers and sisters. But regardless of that, now all the siblings are in the upper room. And now he sees Jesus and he believes that his older brother is the Messiah. He believes his older brother is the Savior, the Lord God. And, and he puts his trust in him. And now all of Jesus' siblings are saved and in the upper room awaiting the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And you know what? If the story would have stopped there, it would have been a nice story. I mean, this is not a bad story, not a bad testimony on testimony night to give. Not a bad little story here, good sermon illustration, but it didn't stop there. You see, because James began to rise in the church. He rose up as a leader in the church. In fact, he wrote an epistle in the New Testament and another one of Jesus' brothers, Jude, he wrote an epistle in the New Testament. Now listen, we don't have a lot of detail about James, just what we know about him is he's the second son of Mary. He was from Nazareth. He was trained as a carpenter, as was tradition at the time. He was a Galilean, so he spoke Aramaic, and he also spoke Greek because Galilee is up on the north, and there's a trade route that comes through there. And if you want to do business outside of your little village community, you needed to learn Greek. Okay, so James spoke Greek. And we also know that his Greek was excellent. John MacArthur says that his Greek is so pristine and excellent in the book that he wrote. Um, we know from 1 Corinthians 9, 5, we know that James was married. So from a biogra biographical perspective, that's about all we know about him. But we do know that he had a gr God had a great plan for this man. So he's an unbelieving brother. He's a believing brother. And then number three, he's a pillar in the church. Now after Pentecost, the apostles scattered to preach. Okay? Who's taking care of the church of Jerusalem? Fell to James. Fell to James. He became, to borrow a contemporary term, he became the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He played a significant role at that church. Three years after Paul's conversion, which is five years after Pentecost, Paul makes a secret journey to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the church. Who has Galatians 1, 18 and 19? <clears throat> then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So when Paul went to go tell the church of his conversion, which, by the way, they were scared, they were scared to death of Paul because of what he had done to him in the past. And so when he went to go tell the church about his conversion, he went right to the leader of the church, which was James. James was the leader of the church. Um, in Acts 12, Peter 
is released from prison. And when he's released from prison, what did he say? Go tell James. Because it was a church matter. And all church matters went, went to him and through him. There was a council at Jerusalem in Acts 15. Now, we don't have the time to go into all of it, but basically, Paul and Barnabas are coming off their first missionary journey, and they come across some people who are, are teaching false doctrine. And what these people are teaching is, is, is yes, uh, you, you, uh, you have to, uh, Christ is true, but believing in Christ is not enough to be saved. You also have to have the ritual of circumcision. You have to follow some aspects of the law of Moses. And so what these, what they call Judaizers, what these Judaizers are trying to do is marry grace and works. And that is a false gospel. I, uh, I, uh, tweeted out and I put on a posted on Facebook a, uh, a Timothy Keller quote where he said, "You didn't earn your salvation. How could you unearn it?" Talking about works as for salvation, but this was a perverted gospel. Who has Acts fifteen one? So, so, so Paul's like, and Paul and Barnum is like, we, we got to talk about this. We, we, we can't let this stand, you know. Uh, we, uh, so they traveled to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, to meet with the elders. And, uh, you know, James is the moderator of this meeting. Okay, he's the moderator of this meeting. And it's in this context that Galatians 2.9 calls James a pillar of the church. And you know who else that verse calls a pillar? Peter and John. So James is not an apostle, but he's, he's right up there with them. Okay? So Paul and Barnabas say, look, we, we lead these Gentiles to the Lord, and then these Judaizers come along and put this burden of the law on them. Okay? And, and, and this was the first church council to... a Affirm sound doctrine. So I'm going to read for you Acts 15, 7 through 11. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testifying to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we been a have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And Peter's look, sinners are reconciled to God through, by grace, through faith alone. You don't need circumcision. You don't need the law of Moses. And Peter got done speaking. James stood up right behind him and echoed exactly what Peter had said. 
the pastor of the church, the moderator of the council, he echoed what Peter said. And he said that he, James said, that Gentiles are getting saved, legitimately saved, without the ritual of circumcision and without the law of Moses. And at the center of this debate was James, the brother of our Lord Jesus. Now he's mentioned again in the church as leadership in the church, he's mentioned again in Acts 21. This is almost a decade later. Paul returns to Jerusalem. Of course, this is the trip to Jerusalem that Paul gets arrested and gets sent to Rome. And he comes back to give a report, and it's right after this report that Paul is to be arrested. But uh, who's got Acts 21, 17, and 19? Ten years after that council, he's still the leader of the church. It was five years after this council that James was martyred. Portius Festus, who was the Roman governor, had died. And in this transition of appointing a new governor, the high priest rose to power and he arrested James. He charged him with breaking the law of Moses. He was convicted. He was sentenced to death. He was thrown off the top of the temple. He hit the ground. He didn't die. They stoned him. He was still hanging on to life. And then they beat him to death. And that's how James died, how he gave his life for Christ beaten to death by an angry mob. But James was so important. He was leading people to freedom in Christ out of this transition out of the law of Moses. And you have to understand that when you read the book of James. You got to. Or else you're, you're going to read it the wrong way. Okay? People have done it for centuries. Okay? You have to understand this in context. What people don't realize is that James is also the first model pastor of the first church. He's the first model pastor. James stayed and pastored that church for 30 years. 30 years he pastored that church. James had a shepherd's heart. He cared for the people that he was given charge of and that comes out in his book. And through his book, when we start in it next week, we are going to see his, his shepherd's heart that he had. So he was an unbelieving brother. Then he was a believing brother. He's a pillar in the church. And then number four, he's a writer of Scripture. A writer of Scripture. Now he wrote this epistle for the Jews that fled Jerusalem from persecution from Herod around the year 44 A.D. Now, the book doesn't mention the Council of Jerusalem, so it was probably written before then, which would have meant that it was written in the early 40s, which, get this, makes James the first New Testament book written. 
The second one was Galatians. But James is the first New Testament book written. Um, so he is the first instrument that God uses to write a book in the New Testament. Now, some people who have read the book of James, they note five character traits about him from the book of James. Here they are. Number one, he was a man of true humility. A man of true humility. <clears throat> How do we know that? We're going to read the first verse. Now, listen, I'm going to go through this study in the New American. But I want to, tonight, I'm going to read James 1.1 out of the Holman because, uh, and you'll listen to Hawaii in a second. James 1.1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, New American says bondservant. It means the same thing. But, but slave is this idea that James wanted to get across the degrading part of that was his intention. Because look, if he wanted to make a big impact, he could have said, I am James, the brother of Jesus Christ. But not one time in his book does he ever claim relationship to Jesus Christ. He simply sees himself as a slave to his older brother who he held in contempt for over 30 plus years. Now he considers himself a slave to the man he once scorned. Number two, he was a righteous man. Church tradition calls him James the Just, calls him James the Righteous. In the book of James, there are 50 imperatives, meaning there are 50 commands that command people to live a life of righteousness. To live a life of obedience. Number three, he was a loving pastor. He pours his heart out for really these strangers that he doesn't know, but they're poor and they're destitute and they're fleeing out into foreign alien places that they don't know. He has a heart for them. In his letter, um, he has no tolerance for favoritism in the church. Don't treat the rich man any different than you treat the poor man. He encourages unity in the body of Christ. He says this church is a fellowship of the poor and the rich. We're on the same level. Okay? He wants his, he, he wants his people to love one another and he calls his people beloved. Number four, he's a man of the word and of prayer. That's one line. He's a man of the, of the word and of prayer. His letter contains four direct quotes from the Old Testament. And get this, 40 indirect quotes in five chapters. 40 indirect quotes from the Old Testament. He knew the word of God. He also gives a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, echoing the teachings of Jesus. He's also a man of prayer. That, that last section on prayer, the, 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 the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James believed in prayer. And then number five, James was a theologian. In five chapters, 
He includes the theology of suffering, the theology of sin, the theology of fallenness, the theology of the demonic world, the theology of the law, the theology of faith, the theology of church, the theology of God, the theology of Christ. It's a lot of theology. You know, just, just, in, you know, just in case somebody might think, oh, well, James was a shoe-in to be the, the leader of the church of Jerusalem because of his relationship with Jesus. He was Jesus' brother. He was real familiar with Jesus. So, of course, he would be the pastor of the first church. But what they don't understand is that fact was James's biggest obstacle. It was his biggest obstacle that he had to overcome was his familiarity with Jesus. And what's the saying? Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. But Jesus had other plans for James. One day, you were living your life. You were living in sin. You were slaves to this world. And God came to you and said, Hey, Buddy Rowe, I got other plans for you. Jesus showed up to James and James received Christ and He changed him. So before, while he was under contempt at being under Jesus, now he's willing to be called a slave of his older, older brother and ultimately give his life for his older brother. And God used him in an amazing, amazing way. Someone very unlikely. God used him in, a, in an amazing way. And you know what? God does that a lot. Have you noticed that? Using people in an amazing way. With the most unlikeliest of people, including us. He uses us. And who knows? God has planned for your life.